Thank you very much for the kind introduction, friends, colleagues, ladies and gentlemen, dear brothers and sisters. Uh, on the 5th of March 1987, a 22-year-old kid who had not left South Africa before landed up in Oxford. Uh, I didn't know much about Oxford then. For my sins, I got the Rhodes Scholarship, so because I arrived six months earlier, because I had to flee while on the run from the apartheid police, uh, I, I didn't have a place to stay. So Rhodes House very kindly accommodated me for a few uh, weeks earlier. And because I was significantly sleep-starved, having been on the run from the police for quite some time, my first night in Oxford was not a very restful night, but actually I went to bed at 9 p.m. and woke up at 12 noon. <laughs> and the night before, it had snowed. And the curtains, I was so tired when I eventually was safe in that room, I kind of said, okay, right, I've made it. I've got out of South Africa and I'm, uh, and I'm safe. So I didn't even get around to closing the curtains. So at noon, there was a knock on the door. And if you've been on the run for a long time, if there's a knock on the door, that's the worst thing you want to hear, right? <laughs> so anyway, I woke up and I looked in front of me and there was snow. I'd never seen snow before. <laughs> and the door opened and then a very nice woman comes in and say, sir, can I bring you some tea and toast, please? <laughs> I'd never been called sir before. And I'd never had a white woman in my room before. I'd never been offered breakfast in bed before. And there was snow, I thought, Jesus Christ, I must have died and I must be in heaven. <laughs> so, so it's really always very nice for me to be back in Oxford. I learned a lot from my years here. And at that time, I must be honest with you, if any of my contemporaries came up to me and started talking about environmental issues, they would not have found a very receptive audience because I had come from a struggle where everything was about beating the apartheid system. And in my own context, the environment was something that white people did. And we used to say that the white people treated the animals better than they treated the most of the population in the country. But as I've been involved in the anti-poverty movement over the many decades, it became clear to me that in fact the struggle to end global poverty and the struggle to avert catastrophic climate change and for environmental justice must and should be seen as two sides of the same coin. So one of the big changes that we need in thinking about the environmental movement in the 21st century is we have to break that dichotomy that has historically existed, which said to advance the de development and address poverty, you have to do X, Y, and Z, and to address the environment and climate and sustainability, you have to do A, B, and C. Unless we understand that these different challenges that humanity faces have to be addressed in an interconnected way. Right now, uh, we live in a world where we see a convergence of different crises. In a book that I wrote in October 2010, I called it a boiling point, both literally and figuratively. Boiling point because of a warming planet, but also recognizing that more and more citizens across the world 
are feeling deeply alienated from their political institutions, from the political leaders and so on, and that in fact are reaching literally and figuratively a boiling point. Bear in mind this was in June of 2010. Tunisia exploded in December 2010. Egypt after that, Occupy movement, and we have seen multiple expressions of citizen disaffection with governments increasingly. But interestingly, if you look at these new explosions of alienation, quite often increasingly, the trigger is around an environmental issue. So let me just take the situation in Turkey. You might remember that for the better part of the last couple of months, we have seen quite major demonstrations in Turkey. It started around a small public park in Istanbul called Gezi Park. It was a group of citizens who wanted to defend that. They said, we don't see a need for a new uh, shopping mall and we need public spaces. What started off as a small environmental issue mushroomed into a bigger issue about the quality of democracy, human rights, and so on. Similarly, you might, be, might have noticed the uh, protests in Brazil recently, uh, which was against how much of money that's being spent on the World Cup and so on. The trigger for that was a public transport issue, which was a massive upscaling in public bus fares in the city of Sao Paulo. So what you are seeing increasingly is that this idea that you can put development, peace, human rights, uh, environment, and so on in silos just doesn't work. We have to encourage now our political leaders to do something that the women's movement taught us decades ago, which we choose to ignore. The women's movement provided a very powerful idea several decades ago I must confess, though, a rather cumbersome word where they talked about intersectionality. Any sad people in the audience have come across this word? <laughs> no feminists in the audience. Ah, okay, at least one. So the idea behind intersectionality was if you were, from a feminist point of view, if you want to advance the question of gender equality, you needed to understand how gender in intersected with race, class, age, ability, and so on. Similarly, today, we have to understand where the different pieces of the struggles that we face and challenges that humanity face have to be addressed. Let me shock you a bit, given the background that, I've, uh, that you've just heard that I come from. I want to start a sentence that uh, David Breyer would be particularly appalled, maybe, uh, when I started. I strongly support the CIA and the Pentagon. <laughs> when in 2003, they told President Bush in a report that the biggest future threat to peace, security, and stability will not come from conventional threats, will not come from terrorism, but actually will come from the impacts of climate change. I think most of you have heard of the genocide in Darfur. The way the global media presented it was mainly that it was an ethnic and sometimes quasi-religious conflict. But history will soon understand that, in fact, the tragedy of Darfur is probably the first major resource war brought about as a result of climate impacts. Lake Chad, one of the largest inland seas in the world, was 
has shrunk to the size of a pond, to quote the UN Secretary General. So water scarcity that neighbors Darfur is one issue. And then the Sahel Desert is marching southwards at the rate of one mile a year. So land scarcity and water scarcity, and which obviously leads to food scarcity, combine to actually give the impetus. Uh, of course, there was ethnic and identity manipulation that took place, no question about it. But the trigger and the impetus and the energy for the horrific loss of life that we have seen, uh, no doubt, was inspired in a great part by climatic impacts. So why, when increasingly now, the world understands that, in fact, we have to address the issue of climate change and global warming, why is it that we do not have the kind of energy and progress that we need to have? So I want to suggest to you that we have a really big problem captured by a psychological uh, concept called cognitive dissonance. Now, those of you like me who might have missed that class when you were at Oxford or at, uh, uh, whichever university you should have picked it up, let me, know, let me give you an example of what is a good example of cognitive dissonance. So you remember when the US troops finally made it into Baghdad, Saddam Hussein's communications minister was still operational and he was doing a press conference. And he gets asked by the journalists, folks, uh, he gets asked, so aren't you, how are you going to cope with US military power? How are you going to cope with standing up to this shock and awe military capability coming at you? And he said, what attack? What invasion? Everything's fine. We've got everything under control. And behind him, buildings are burning. Some small bombs are dropping, and so on. I want to put it to you that that's how our political and business leadership largely are dealing with the issue of climate change specifically and environmental destruction generally. Because one of the paradigm shifts that we have to make is to understand protecting nature and the environment is not a privileged middle-class enterprise. It might be true that the environmental movement does express a predominant middle-class orientation in terms of who are particularly active. However, we need to understand that the survival of humanity on this planet depends on how we actually coexist with nature. So, for example, if you take the issue of forests, in the past, we mainly talked about forests from a biodiversity point of view, from a, um, a uh, species protection point of view, all of which is important in itself. However, today, more and more of humanity recognizes that the forests are the lungs of this planet. They store and safely capture carbon. And the fact that we have, as we sit in this room today, every two seconds, a forest the size of a football field will disappear. After all the knowledge now, all the talk, you know, we have to protect forests and because they're central to, as, as, as partly as a response to climate change, we continue to see forests disappear. True, organizations like Greenpeace and WWF and others are winning some important battles to protect forests in the Amazon, in the Congo Basin, in Indonesia, and so on, particularly our big tropical forests. However, if you were to ask me, how do I judge 
the impact of Greenpeace, I will honestly say to you, we are winning important battles, but we are losing the planet and we are losing the war. Because, let me just walk you through a couple of things. I'll, I'll try not to depress you too much. <laughs> so if you take oceans, right, because of increasing carbon levels in the atmosphere and declining forests, the excess carbon is landing up in our oceans, creating a problem called ocean acidification. Essentially, our oceans are turning into acid. Now, last year in April, Newsweek, not a particularly radical environmental or social magazine, ran a front page cover saying, because of human greed, all that will be left in our oceans four decades from now will be jellyfish and algae. Think about that. Four decades. Why? We have a triple whammy impacting on our oceans. We have overfishing on a scale that is criminal, often illegal, often violating various uh, protocols. We have ocean acidification and then we have dumping of toxics including an increased amount of oil spills in our oceans. So four decades from now, I'm looking at some of the younger people in the room, hopefully you all will be around, and what are the implications of that? One billion people on this planet rely on oceans for their protein, right? Uh, so we are talking, and, and John F. Kennedy once said, if our oceans die, humanity will surely die. So oceans is a big problem. Forests is not as serious, I would argue, but we are losing there. And the most and biggest challenge we face is climate change. So let's look at where we are on climate change briefly. Many of you will remember that there was this big climate negotiations in Copenhagen in December of 2009. We went to Copenhagen, calling Copenhagen, Hopenhagen, and so on. By the time we left Copenhagen, we were calling it Nopenhagen, Jokenhagen, Floppenhagen, and so on. But what did we try to achieve in Copenhagen? The science told us that we needed to get what was called a fab deal. Not a fabulous deal, but a fair, ambitious, and legally binding treaty on climate and that that treaty should actually lead us to a situation that by 2015, two years from now, emissions should peak and start coming down. Sadly, what we got out of Copenhagen was not a fab deal, but we got a flab deal, full of loopholes and bull, <laughs> with lots of regal room for governments to actually walk away from it completely. And what our governments have done is they've completely ignored the science and ignored the timeline of what the science is telling us we need to do. And they said, ah, okay, what we'll do instead is we'll negotiate and agree a fair, ambitious, and binding treaty in Paris in December 2015, and then we'll delay its implementation till 2020. So what are the implications of that? The reality is the science is only clear that once we reach a certain tipping point, we will have catastrophic runaway climate change. What the science doesn't tell us is what exactly that, does that look like? What level of catastrophe? What level of 
uh, runaway climate change, but essentially they're saying that it's then irreversible. My dear brothers and sisters, in April this year, the scientific community announced that we have exceeded 400 parts per million of carbon in the atmosphere. When the first Earth Summit was held in Rio, more than 20 years ago, we were under 350 parts per million. You might have heard of a very dynamic uh, NGO called 350.org that campaigns on climate. They call 350.org because at that time, the scientific opinion was the safe level to be was 350 parts per million of carbon in the atmosphere. We are already at 400, right? And we are heading so fast towards 450, which the science says is actually the upper limit of where we can go. Now, our politicians believe that we can basically renegotiate the science, right? We cannot. And when I say we are suffering from a deep condition of cognitive dissonance, what I mean by that is that, in fact, our leaders are in denial about the need for urgency in the way we address the impacts of climate change. Now, when we talk about climate change, generally, a lot of the global conversations is that, oh, climate change will affect our children and grandchildren. But let's understand what's the current reality. Kofi Annan, the former Secretary General of the United Nations uh, Foundation, brought out a report showing that, in fact, already now, we are losing close to 500,000 people annually directly from climate impacts, right? Now, here's the terrible tragedy, or the terrible injustice, let's say. The people who are paying the first and most brutal price of climate impacts are, in fact, the ones that have been least responsible for carbon emissions. These are the people who don't use cars, don't have a refrigerator, don't have any of the mod cons that perhaps you and I take for granted. But, and that's why you see a new language emerging within the environmental movement for a couple of years now, where we talk about climate justice. So essentially, when developing countries are saying to developed countries, we want you to contribute significant money towards a green climate fund that will help us leapfrog the dirty technology route that you went through to be able to build our economies, developing countries are not asking for charity from rich countries. It's simply saying, pay your climate debt, pay your carbon debt. Because if you built your economies on the basis of carbon, which we now see is a problem, then you have two choices. You either, because the difficulty we are having at Greenpeace is that, say if I sit down with the chief uh, climate negotiator of China, as I did uh, last year in Beijing, we can, get, we can make lots of progress in those conversations. But we get to a point where they will say that, because already drought in southwest China and flooding in multiple provinces in China is already telling the Chinese leadership climate change is here, these things are going to get out of control, and lots of your progress will be wiped out. So, they, so they, they speak quite openly, and they say, you know, we want to move faster. However, what they say is that it's really difficult when the countries that built their economies on the basis of fossil fuels continue to invest huge amounts of money 
in new fossil fuel projects increasingly more crazier, more dangerous, and so on. Let me just mention two. And let me ask a naughty question. How many friends of mine from Canada are in the audience? No Canadians. Oh, okay, then I can exaggerate it a bit. <laughs> now, one of the, sadly, you know, Canada used to be one of the countries that represented sanity in the world, right? They, for example, on the ozone layer, they took the lead. The Montreal Protocol is what that protocol is called, and we've been able to actually address that quite successfully. Today, Canada has pulled out of the Kyoto Protocol. It is one of the fastest growing emitters in the world because of a technology to get oil called either oil sands or tar sands. Let me just ask, how many of you have heard about tar sands? Okay, most of you. Okay, but, you know, if you have an opportunity to go and see it with your own eyes of what is happening there, I would encourage you to do that. Don't make a special trip, by the way. But if you happen to be in the neighborhood, you know, go check it out. I mean, I went and, for example, and spoke to a First Nations community in an area called Fort Chippewan. They were telling me, and this is 500 meters from where the actual tar sands exploitation is happening, and they were telling me that the river, the Athabasca River, um, is for centuries, they drank water from that river. Today, not only they can't drink water, they can't even take water from the river, put on a stove, and boil that water to be able to have tea, because that's how toxic that water is. Right? The amount of emissions that comes from tar sands is incredible. The amount of water that is used is terrible. Some of us for decades now have been saying that the wars of the future will not be fought about oil, but will be fought about water. And already we are seeing the signs of that. Water is a resource that humanity needs for its basic survival. So in a context like that, what are the changes we need in the environmental movement? Well, let me give you a very uncomfortable statistic. According to WWF, if all the people in the world were to enjoy the average material level of consumption that, say, folks in the UK do, and most of us will fall in that category, the world will need the equivalent of a minimum of three planets and a maximum of eight planets. Think about that just for a second. This planet has boundaries and limitations. And if we are to have a world with greater equity, greater justice, greater sustainability, then one thing that we have to do as an environmental movement starts some very difficult questions about consumption, what we consume, how we consume, why we consume, and begin to refashion what humanity needs for a successful, happy life on this planet without eroding the natural assets to a point where, essentially, we threaten the ability of our children, grandchildren, and their children to survive on this planet, because that is what is at stake. Now, my job actually is quite difficult because uh, People expect me whenever I speak to be inspiring and motivational and, and so on. And I was speaking to a group of 
foundations in the United States called the Environmental Grant Makers Association recently, and an irate woman in the audience put up her hand and said, Dr. Naidu, have you heard of Martin Luther King? I said, yes. And then she said, do you know what his most famous speech was called? And I thought it was a trick question, so I very tentatively said, uh, I, I, I have a dream. And she said, yes! I have a dream. It wasn't I have a nightmare when I hear you speak. It sounds like you have a nightmare. <laughs> now, the difficulty, seriously, is how do we do both things at the same time? How do we speak honestly about the planetary limits that we are getting closer and closer to? Because bottom line is, let's be very honest that right at the center of this conversation is the question of the quality of our democracies. And that is another connection that the environmental movement needs to make more and more. So let me just give you a context of the United States. The United States is today the best democracy money can buy. <laughs> and when you interrogate where that money comes from, the story becomes very clear as to why, notwithstanding President Obama's commitment to drive forward uh, on climate change, because bear in mind, there were three phrases that the world heard from President Obama when he was campaigning in his first elections. Yes, we can. The fierce urgency of now, which was a phrase actually from Martin Luther King. And the third one was a planet in peril. Does anybody remember that? Planet in peril was a common thing that he used. And when he was saying a planet in peril, people around the world, if not in the United States, understood that he was speaking about the impact of climate change. And so let's look at the situation in the US Congress. For every member of Congress, the fossil fuel industry, the oil, coal, and gas industry, subsidizes three full-time lobbyists, minimum, up to a maximum of eight full-time lobbyists to ensure no progressive climate legislation goes through. And let's understand that one of the notions behind democracy was that democracy was to balance the wallets by the ballots, right? That those who were wealthy, of course, were going to have a particular greater say in society, but that should be balanced by ordinary people being given an equal vote. Uh, in elections. And I want to say to you the reality today is that too many of our governments around the world have been captured by narrow economic interests where profit has been put so much ahead of the interests of people and the long-term interests of the environment and, and, and people. And we can choose to ignore it, but I believe that right now there has to be some major, major rethinking. And the case of what's happening in the Arctic, uh, I'll just tell you the story very quickly. Now, as an African, I can tell you the Arctic is a very, very far place away, right? <laughs> Growing up, I had no imagination about the Arctic, right? But I've come to understand now that the Arctic is the refrigerator or the air conditioner of the planet. It helps reflect the rays back into the uh, atmosphere and moderates global climate temperature, uh, global temperatures. Now, in the summer months in the Arctic, because of increased emissions, the ice is melting at a rapid rate. 
So it's bizarre and perverse that the only reason, for example, the Russian state oil company Gazprom can even be there is as a result of burning of oil, coal, and gas. And rather than seeing this as a warning sign that in fact we are running out of time, now our so-called respectable oil companies and so on are going there to try to see how they can find the last drop of oil. So Greenpeace has been protesting against this. Last year, this platform of Gazprom in the Barren Sea in the far Russian Arctic was about to start drilling oil and it would be the first operation where they actually start drilling oil. I was part of that protest last year and we were there for five days, the Russian Coast Guard was there and so on. We stopped them for five days and ultimately they suspended operations last year and they said they were postponing it till this year. Now we were there just this last week and uh, in the last 48 hours two of our activists were arrested which by the way we were prepared for, they had occupied the rig, and we have no problem with the fact that they were taken into custody, and we, as we always do as Greenpeace, we stand our ground and we, we face those charges. But when the ship was outside of the exclusion zone in the last 24 hours, via helicopters, the Russian authorities dropped several armed guards onto the ship, held all the crew with guns, made them all lie on the, on the deck, and in the last 16 hours, we've got no communication with this ship and 30 colleagues that are in the Russian Coast Guard's custody. Now, I tell you the story because I want to make a bigger point about what does history teach us when humanity has faced a major challenge? Whether it was slavery, whether it was colonialism, whether it was apartheid, whether it was women's right to choose civil rights in the United States and so on. All of these struggles, dear brothers and sisters, only move forward when decent men and women stood up and said, enough is enough and no more. We prepare to put our lives on the line, we prepare to go to prison if necessary. And I want to suggest to you that all these struggles that I mentioned, apartheid affected people in one country, civil rights affected people in the United States, a woman's right to vote uh, affected more than 50% of the world's population. But let me say that the struggle to avert catastrophic climate change is much bigger than all of those struggles combined because what is at stake is humanity's ability to survive on this planet. And therefore, I believe that if we are to actually get the change and generate the political will that is needed, then sadly, many, many people are going to have to engage in peaceful civil disobedience because sadly, that is the language, evidently, that those in power and those not only in political power but those also in business understand best. So one of the changes that we have to make is to not be apologetic about engaging in peaceful civil disobedience because as the Arab Spring has shown with all its complexities and difficulties and as history shows that those with power will only shift as fast as we need them to when decent people say, I am not prepared because a choice we have. Can I just ask you a question? How many of you are grandparents? Please raise your hands. How many of you are parents? Please raise your hands. Because, you know, the bottom line is this struggle is not about some ethereal thing called the planet, the environment, the climate. 
This struggle is about our children and grandchildren. And what astounds me is the absence of intergenerational solidarity in the way we live on this planet. That we almost live as if we do not have children, we do not have grandchildren, and they are not going to you know, be uh, generating their offspring. That's, and, 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 and here's the good news. The good news is it is possible for us to be able to turn this crisis into an opportunity. And let me conclude with that because I can see one person is about to start crying. So I tell you there's some good news coming. <laughs> so how could we do this? Well, we have lived far too long in a world that has been divided between rich and poor, north and south, east and west, developing and developed. Climate change holds a unique human learning opportunity, meaning that we either come to the realization as rich and poor countries acting together that we either get this right as all the nations of the world acting together and we secure the future of all our children and grandchildren, or if we don't get it right, yes, it's true, poor countries will suffer more first, but ultimately, as developments in Australia are showing, as the drought in the United States last year in 14 states is showing, Rich countries are not immune from the impact of climate change. So one opportunity it has is to actually break down these divisions that have led to stupid, indefensible wars that have taken too many lives for too long, and a stupid, indefensible use of resources uh, that could have gone to education, health, building infrastructure, and so on. And we have to break with that. And climate change could be something that actually brings us together. And interestingly, there was just a few months ago a small light of hope where John Kerry, who gets climate change, the US Secretary of State, and his Chinese counterpart were able to come together in Beijing and talk about how the US and China were going to, while the big climate negotiation goes ahead, that they are going to take some steps. Now, you and I might say it's not far enough, but that's exactly the kind of opportunity that I'm talking about, where we have to break down the crazy boundaries that have stupidly divided humanity for far too long. Then there's a second um, opportunity. When we were campaigning in Germany uh, with Angela Merkel to encourage her to give up on nuclear and invest more in renewables, Apart from the safety arguments, the arguments that the nuclear industry cannot talk about you know, how it will store spent nuclear waste safely, because essentially he has another example of in, an absence of intergenerational solidarity because we're just passing the problem to our kids. Uh, just to give you an image, to think about nuclear waste, archaeologists of today, when they work, they find buildings, temples, small villages, artifacts that our ancestors left, archaeologists of tomorrow, if we continue in the nuclear path, because it takes between 200 to 1,000 years for nuclear waste to actually be, become safe again, right? Our kids who choose to be archaeologists will find the most toxic, poisonous waste that we have left for them. So when we were debating with Angela Merkel and the German leadership, one of the most persuasive arguments was actually the jobs argument. We're able to say, with all the trillion 
Dushmarks and now euros that has gone in subsidies to the nuclear industry and only a tiny fraction of that that has gone to uh, renewable energy industry. Uh, the renewable energy industry is already generating about 400,000 jobs and the nuclear industry is generating 30,000 jobs. Right? So we have done studies in several parts of the world now and others have done studies who show that in fact the job creation potential of a serious energy revolution on the scale of the industrial revolution because essentially it's about maximizing all the solar potential, the wind potential, the wave potential, the biomass potential, the geothermal potential, and there are other options we have available. If we were to maximize all of that in a serious way which says we need to meet our energy's needs on the one hand, but we have to do it in a way that generates jobs on the other hand, we can have a double win, both for the environment and specifically the climate on the one hand, but also for development and job creation, which is critically needed, not only in developing countries, but also in Europe in the context of the financial crisis that we actually have. Just take, for example, the construction industry as one sector, right? We could have an explosion in the constructive industry if we get serious about energy efficiency and saying that every building that's built in the future, obviously it should meet energy efficiency standards, but how do we retrofit existing buildings from schools to office buildings to uh, homes and so on to generate the kind of uh, energy that's needed for us to actually reduce our energy needs on the one hand, but do it in a way that generates jobs on the other. Now, the good news is that today the climate struggle is no longer an environmental issue. It's a cross-cutting issue. In June of last year, some of the NGO leaders and other civil society leaders met with Ban Ki-moon, the UN Secretary General in Rio Plus 20 conference in Rio. And the most eloquent thing I heard at that meeting was not from a traditional environmentalist but was from the leader of the World Trade Union Movement. By the way, the first time a woman was in that leadership uh, from Australia, Sharon Burrows. She's the head of the International Trade Union Federation. And she spoke more eloquently than I did, certainly, and more eloquently than most people about why, as a trade unionist, we need to address climate change. And then at some point, she said to Ban Ki-moon, you might be wondering why me as a trade unionist whose main job is to protect jobs and defend jobs, why in fact I am so passionate about climate change. And she said, because Mr. Secretary General, we as trade unionists re realize that there are no jobs, decent or not, decent jobs or not decent jobs, on a dead planet. Our, tr our religious leaders have to step forward and more and more of them are stepping forward. Because if you think about it, uh, any religious text you pick up, you pick up the Bhagavad Gita, the Torah, the Bible, the Quran, or any other text, there are gems of environmental wisdom in it. And if you are a person of faith, then generally, if you look at all our scriptures, none of them say that God only created us. All of them say God created the oceans, the forests, the mountains, and so on. So I've been quite provocative with the religious leaders and I've said to them, their silence on the issue of the environment generally and on climate change has been deafening and they really need to step forward and take leadership. And I believe, actually, we're not going to succeed 
to turn things around fast enough in a context we are, where we are running out of time, unless particularly other parts of civil society, but especially religious leaders actually step forward, not simply as supporters, but we need some of them to step forward as leaders, because I do not believe that environmental protection is going to be delivered by the environmental movement acting on its own. And that's why at Greenpeace, increasingly, we are working in alliance with others. The other sector of society which we have to look at in a different way is the business community. Today, I would say, if we looked at a continuum of where business thinking is, I would say about 10% of business leaders genuinely believe that we need to act urgently. They are as passionate as I am on these questions. They, in fact, I'll give you an example. Jochen Zeitz, the CEO of the Puma Group, I was speaking at him after the collapse of the Copenhagen Climate Summit. And he spoke first. I was the next speaker at this function in London. And quite honestly, he said everything with as much passion as I would have said it. His disappointment and so on. But they are in a minority, 10%. Then you've got another 10%, mainly in the fossil fuel sector, who are still trying to deny the science, trying to create public confusion and so on. And then in the middle, you've got about the 80% who want to do the right thing. They're not quite sure exactly how to do it. And quite often, they end up in actions that some of us call greenwashing, which is you know, symbolic actions, but in fact, are not making the difficult, painful choices uh, to move in a low-carbon business model. But uh, I spend a considerable amount of time talking to business leaders, and I can see more and more of them are realizing there's no profit on a dead planet either, and that, in fact, many of their businesses are at risk. So when I uh, recently invited one of the biggest retail companies, I invited the whole senior management team to come to Amsterdam, and this company, the CEO and his six senior executives came and met with my colleagues at Greenpeace, uh, and one of their business lines is fishery products. And I said to him, I put it to you that my colleagues at Greenpeace are more committed to the long-term sustainability of your business than you are. I said, if you fish everything out, right, and if you destroy species that you currently, like bluefin tuna, which is under threat, right, you actually wipe out a business line. So unless you begin to think more thoughtfully about how you actually engage in a sustainable business that can last into the future, then in fact you're being irresponsible. Now, I should make a confession that notwithstanding, many of you have probably figured out that I'm you know, quite uh, strong in my views and, and so on. I've been invited to the World Economic Forum for many years now. And, but I went mainly as a human rights and anti-poverty activist and a gender equality activist. And when I used to go in that capacity, I could never get a CEO of a company to sit down and have a chat with me about a human rights activist in Ethiopia that was in prison and that company might be doing business in Ethiopia, which means that they have access to the government and I'll try to lobby them. Never could get a sit-down meeting. I would literally have to run after them in the corridors. In fact, the most successful lobbying I used to do used to be in the men's toilet. Uh, in fact, I lobbied President Clinton while we were both doing our business at the at the men's urinal three, four years ago, no, six years ago, on why the US has not yet signed the treaty to ban landmines. 
But the first time I go as Greenpeace in January of 2010, before I even arrived there, there were so many requests from CEOs for meetings. When I got to Davos, I couldn't go to any sessions. I had to just run from one meeting with one CEO to the other. And when I got to one of them late, I say to them, you know, I'm so sorry, I'm in this new context now. First time I'm coming is Greenpeace, and all you guys want to see me, whereas before you didn't want to see me at all. And then one of, and this guy says to me, I'd rather not say his name. He said, well, you see, Kumi, many of my peers, CEOs of big companies, are desperate to get Greenpeace at the table because they hope that way they won't be on your menu. <laughs> so, so anyway, one of the things that I'm challenging within the, the Greenpeace and the broader environmental movement is that, like it or not, we have to engage with the business community. The business community has to be part of the solution. And we have to convince the leaders of the business community as parents and grandparents that they have a moral obligation to actually fundamentally change some of their business models. So I want to end with two things. One is to, to, to remind you what the Saudi oil minister once said. He said, the Stone Age ended not because we ran out of stones. <laughs> and the oil age and the fossil fuel age will also have to end, not because we run out of it, but because we actually get wiser and recognize that continuing to exploit fossil fuels is driving this planet to destruction and that we have a range of alternatives that is within the creativity, imagination, and capacity and innovation of humanity to harness that, to meet our energy needs on the one hand, but not destroy the planet and our children's future on the other. So with regard to that irate person in the Environmental Grant Makers Association who said I had a nightmare, I thought I should find uh, a positive uh, a way of ending, and I thought I should quote Mahatma Gandhi. Mahatma Gandhi once said, first they ignore you, then they laugh at you, then they fight you, and then you win. <laughs> so from a Greenpeace perspective, they're not ignoring us, they're not laughing at us, they're fighting us really, really hard, and I want to hope that means we are one step away from winning. Thank you very much.